Hello and welcome to the podcast, English for Life in the UK. This podcast is for those people who want to improve their English and at the same time learn more about life in this country. The idea behind this podcast is that you will get lots of practice at listening to native English speakers talking about a range of different subjects. We believe that if you listen to native English speakers talking in a natural way, this will help both your understanding of English and your ability to speak it. Because these are real conversations, you will find that there are unfinished sentences, filler words, and people who change what they're saying part way through. This is how language, all languages, work. We also produce a transcript of each of our episodes. This is usually available a few days after the, the episode is published. We recommend that you listen to the podcast first of all without the transcript and then listen again following the transcript as you do so. The transcript also includes footnotes. That is a little note to explain some of the more difficult vocabulary and phrases. To find out about how to get the transcript of this and all other episodes, and to find out more about the work of our charity, the St Augustine Centre, stay listening to the end of this episode where we will give you the address. Today's episode is introduced by Elsa, one of the new members of our team. For those of you who listened to our preview episode, you will know that Elsa has spent most of her career working in the food industry, both in the UK and internationally. So we are doing a number of episodes related to food. And in the first of these food episodes, Elsa interviews the owner of a family-owned bakery called Lottie Shaw's, which is based in Brighouse in Calderdale, Yorkshire. Hello, my name's Elsa and today I'm delighted to be in the bakery of a company called Lottie Shaw's, talking to the owner of the business, Charlotte Shaw. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Elsa. Hi. So what sort of day have you had so far? Good. A varied day today, but very good. Um, every day is varied here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, a good day today. I can imagine. I can smell some wonderful smells, which is always a delight when you're in a bakery. What have you been making today? So today we've been baking our Yorkshire Parkin cake, 
Um, it's a regional cake baked to our 100-year-old family recipe um, that dates back um, over 100 years. So um, today we've been baking that um, and then that will get um, wrapped on Monday. Um, we leave it to settle over the weekend because um, the sugars caramelise um, and then they soften and then we wrap it on Monday ready to go out next week to our customers. So tell me about your family. So... Um, I have my husband Ian, who is in the business uh, with myself, so, so Ian and myself own the bakery, and then we have two children, Tom and Evie, who are now teenagers, um, my father, he's a master baker of over 60 years, and he is still very much um, involved in the business, as is my mother, who uh, used to run the retail side of their business many years ago. So does that mean shops, when you say the retail side? Yeah, the shop side of it. Um, lots of people don't know this, but my mum, she trained as a cake decorator, and that's how she met my father um, years and years ago. Um, my grandfather, he's a master baker, um, and then um, prior to that, my great aunts founded the business uh, back in 1912. Right, I, I read about your great aunts on, the, on your website, and just fascinated with their original recipes, so which, particularly of your products, of which I often buy and enjoy eating. Which are your actual aunt's recipes? So the Yorkshire Parking Cake, uh, which is a regional speciality. So can you explain what Parking is and where the name comes from? Yep, so Yorkshire Parking is a ginger cake, traditionally eaten on bonfire night, um, because the ginger was thought to warm the blood. Um, but the characteristic of a Yorkshire Parking Cake is the oatmeal that has a gritty texture. The cake gives it a very coarse texture. Um, and the oatmeal, very, very filling, very hearty food. <laughs> um, so lots of the farmer's wives and things used to bake tray, big trays of parking um, to fill up the workers, as did lots of people working in the mills um, as well. They used to have Yorkshire parking as a staple in their packed lunch boxes often. Um, and so it was a really good staple cake that could be um, that was baked um, and lots of different families have their little uh, tweaks on that recipe. Um, so when you say a tweak you mean they make add different ingredients? Well interestingly we use a medium coarse oatmeal which we always have. There are different types of oatmeal. There's the pinhead oatmeal. Um, some people's recipe perhaps didn't have oatmeal. They may um, use the flour more and not use the oatmeal. That was often called a moggy cake. <laughs> right, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> um, and then if you move to different regions such as Lancashire, away from, across the border from Yorkshire, then again they perhaps have different variations of Yorkshire, of, of, of the parking cake, sorry. Mm. Um, so you've got Lancashire parking, Yorkshire parking. And they can also uh, vary the quantities on the ginger, the amount of ginger in the cake, um, and the uh, different quantities of black treacle and syrup, which are also characteristics in the cake. Oh, that's, well, I know it's wonderful, but it's lovely to hear it <laughs> described by somebody who makes it so well. So who are your customers today? So today we supply across the UK. Uh, we also have some customers abroad, but mainly across the UK. And we supply um, into independent retailers mainly. So, so by an independent, you mean not a supermarket chain? Yes. So like farm shops, 
garden centres, delicatessens, um, leisure attractions we supply. Um, but then we do supply like the co-op um, regionally and we supply Marks and Spencers oh, right. regionally as well. That's, I, I see them in my local co-op, which is where I do most of my shopping. So it's always nice that I can pick up some parking or some of your biscuits as well. It's the ginger biscuits that I'm particularly fond of. So the, interesting with the ginger biscuits, we took the Yorkshire parking cake and we took the characteristics, um, the black treacle and the ginger and the syrup, and we created the biscuits. Um, and they're a great biscuit and they have the oatmeal in. A lovely dunking biscuit, which again regionally, um, maybe across the north, maybe across the UK, lots of people like to dunk the biscuits. In I think tea. you <laughs> perhaps have to explain to our audience <laughs> what dunking is so they can indulge in the pleasure too. Okay, well, dunking a biscuit is fabulous, and what you do, you get your biscuit and you basically make a fabulous pot of tea or coffee, uh, and then you basically dip your biscuit into the drink. Uh, before you eat it and the good way to tell a good dunking biscuit really holds together and doesn't fall into crumbs when you put it in the mug um, so yeah very it's, you, you're either a dunker or you're not a dunker <laughs> I don't know about you are you a dunker also? sometimes yeah yeah so um, yeah me too sometimes. I must admit I like my biscuits crunchy if I'm being honest that's, yeah. that's my style but Everybody has that. So you've got biscuits, you've got cakes. When I came in to see you just now, I saw some beautiful shapes that you were, said you were experimenting with for new products. Yeah, so we do novelty gingerbread. So we do lots of different shapes of gingerbread. The gingerbread man shape is our most popular, and that's traditional. The gingerbread man's been around for many, many years. Um, and then we do different shapes for different customers. So we have uh, gingerbread bunnies. Um, we have gingerbread pigs, which the farms <laughs> like. Um, and we have just been working on a gingerbread crown for the Jubilee. Oh, right. Yeah. And, You'll um, be busy in June with that. Yes, yeah, so that, that should be a good one. Um, and we just look at the different occasions and just look at which gingerbread is suitable interestingly in eastern europe then the gingerbread tends to have lots of cinnamon in our recipe is a more traditional recipe to our region and so we just use the ginger we don't add the cinnamon into our gingerbread oh that's really interesting to, to hear this from somebody who knows all these things so well and to be with an expert you run a business i can see in a very impressive bakery but there must be challenges running a business today um, lots of challenges around running businesses. We're very fortunate that during the pandemic we were able to keep working and keep baking. So um, that was lucky, but there has been many challenges around, around that as well. So um, I think particularly at the minute, um, things like energy costs rising, um, just challenges around different customers make, um, who are recovering from the pandemic and just trying to work with them. Like the airlines, we, we were supplying some airlines and some train companies and as well, and, and they they've really been feeling feeling you know how difficult yeah, it's, it's been. It's been really difficult, hasn't it? Yeah, Our yeah. Life changed so much. Yeah, and and one thing we did, we we were sending out our products directly to customers, 
um, much more. You mean mail order? Yeah, mail order Um, was really big for us um, throughout COVID. We had to really adapt our business and change it. So we basically um, changed it to, to move so we could keep it going and keep keep working through the pandemic so so yeah it has been it has been challenging but we've been quite fortunate that you know we sort of have come out the other side um mm. you know so we've been lucky from that um we also do quite a bit of community work as well so um we donate to food banks um you know we, we, we do help with that where we can we don't have any food waste so we bake to order and then anything that there was surplus then tends to go to food bank. Um, we work with New Yorkshire Air Ambulance as well. So we give a donation for some biscuits we sell back to the charities. That works works well. Uh, so yeah, we try and do our bit. Given the importance of the environment and sort of waste and packaging, has that been something that you found easy to adapt to or do you find that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done across the industry the food packaging industry for example um very interestingly when um the family started baking all those years ago then packaging was just not a requirement like it is now Mm. so you know the bait the the products would get baked daily and then sold in the shops um i know my aunts had a outside catering business and they would supply catering and they'd put food into the barracks and things and, and they would just take them loose and then sell them um, or they might have little brown paper bags at the time that you know customers would come and, and buy daily so that the, they hadn't got the packaging we've got in this day and age since we when we created the brand um, Lotta Shores the packaging was really key to keep it sustainable um, and so we've always tried to use sustainable packaging which we have um, an example of that is that when we box our biscuits we've never used like the plastic trays because we've never needed them because the way we've designed the boxes meant that we didn't need them so we have the cardboard that can be recycled um, we use the sugars to preserve the products so we're not adding artificial um, products to enhance the life we're using the sugars to do that to keep it quite a natural product mm. um, but then to do that and keep it fresh so to speak then we need to make it um, heat seal the product so we put it into the film that heat seals it mm. um, that film then um, needs to, we need to find a way to uh, recycle that going forward and that's what the challenge is right now is to just look at using films that we can that can be reused or recycled um, n- interestingly in terms of thinking about the packaging and recycling we've just um, in our gifting range introduced like a wash bag which is um, sourced in the UK. So buy a wash bag. What so imagine it's, imagine a wash bag. It's like you put your toothbrush and toothpaste in it normally, yeah. <laughs> or your makeup or something in the bag. But we've taken this bag, had it made in the UK with our design on, and then we put the, our treats in. But then the customer, after they've eaten the treats, can then reuse the bag. So they're not having to discard that packaging. They there's another purpose for the packaging to, to make it, um you know there's not make it a gift a lovely gift that can be used. Well, that's, okay. it's really good to hear just how much thought and care you're putting into this, because I think all of consumers, everybody around the world, is worried about the environment and concerned that we all do the right thing. So great to see this is really happening here at Lottie Shores <laughs> in Brickhouse. Thank so. you. So, obviously, coming to the end of our conversation, 
How do you see the future for Lottie Shores? Um, I think the future is bright. I think we bake premium products using premium ingredients. So we, we try and source the best product locally that we can for our recipes. And I think whilst we do that, then I think there'll be great, you know, people will keep hopefully buying and enjoying the products. Um, the, there's more emphasis on portion sizes reducing. Um, Can you explain portion size? So portion size is the, uh, the size of the products. Um, there's the, the recommended um, daily intake of calories and things that um, the government recommends. And, and as um, responsible you know, bakers and, and uh, food producers, then we are always looking at how we can um, look at the portion size, make sure we fit in with the guidelines and look at products that our um, that we can develop that perhaps do have less sugar for some customers. Um, we also have other requirements, like we have lots of um, some naturally vegan products now. So, you know, we, we are appealing to lots of different people. And I think as long as we can adapt our business and our recipes to meet the needs of today and today's consumer, then I would like to think that actually, hopefully, we've got a positive, bright future. Oh, hopefully. So do you think your family will want to continue in the business? Um, perhaps. Um, I always think it's important that they move, they don't come straight into the business. Mm. For me, when I, I think it's important to maybe go away, um, get some education, get some experience mm. and find out what's out there and then maybe come back to the business later in life with your ideas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rather than just coming straight into the business. I think it would benefit them to to get more but they possibly they, they may come into it Eventually. it's very hard work <laughs> yeah hard that's work. right i can imagine it is well charlotte i can only thank you for such an interesting conversation i've learned a great deal and hopefully our listeners will enjoy hearing about lottie shaw's parking and ginger biscuits oh well lovely thank you for coming to see us it's been a pleasure to have you here and um, i'll make sure you have some treats on the way out <laughs> thank <Enjoy>. you <laughs> Language support. This is the part of the podcast where I choose some words and phrases from the episode and explain their use. I'm going to start with the word tweak. In this episode, we talked about tweaking a recipe. To tweak is to make a small change to something. So there was a recipe for this particular product, a traditional recipe, and in this case they've made some small changes to that traditional recipe. They have tweaked it. You can talk about tweaking a document where you make a few changes to some of the words or the sentences in that document and you could say I have tweaked the document. So to tweak is to make small changes to something. Then I'm going to talk about two phrases that relate to the topic of food. First of all, Elsa referred to shopping at the co-op. Now, the co-op is short for the cooperative. A, a cooperative 
is a business or association where people have come together to jointly own and run that enterprise with a common purpose and shared benefits. Now, the co-op refers specifically to the cooperative group, which is a UK-based enterprise and provides a range of food, pharmacy, financial and legal services on a cooperative basis. And the users of those services are also the members of that cooperative association. Most towns in Britain have a co-op shop. So there it is usually a small supermarket selling quite a wide range of products. And certainly when Elsa was referring to the co-op, she meant the shop in her town where she is able to buy a range of things, including some of the items from Lottie Shores. The cooperative movement began its life in the north of England and we will do a future episode about this. The other food-related phrase was a reference to food banks. Food banks are where people have organised to collect donated food, food given free by other people that can then be distributed to those people who are desperately in need of food and cannot afford to buy all the food that they need. Sadly, in the UK, particularly in the last few years, there has been an enormous growth in the number of food banks, partly as a result of the pandemic, the virus, but also as a result of a growing poverty and a gap between the rich and the poor in the UK. So food banks are quite common in the UK now. Again, we will make reference to these in future episodes. That's it for this week. I hope you found this a useful episode. There will be other ones related to the topic of food in the future. If you want to get the transcript for this episode and to listen and read the transcript at the same time, which we do recommend to help with improving your English, you can find this on our website. This is also where you can find out more about the work of our charity and if you are in a position to do so, to donate to help us to keep this work going. So the website is www.staugustinescentrehalifax.org.uk I'll spell that out, www.staugustinescentrehalifax.org.uk
C-E-N-T-R-E-H-A-L-I-F-A-X dot org O-R-G That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Keep up your English practice and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Goodbye for now. Well, this morning I'm up in the hills between Hebden Bridge and the border town of Todmonden. Todmonden is on the borders between Calderdale and Lancashire and delighted to be with two farmers, well, one farmer and one cheesemaker. I have with me Carl and Sandra. Uh, hello. Hi. <laughs> and they're going to tell us about their fascinating business as dairy farmers and cheesemakers. So, I don't know who wants to start. Do you want to start, Carl, and talk about the, the uh, cheesemaking, or would you first...? I'll start with the farm. It's uh, mm -hmm. Sandra's family farm. From 19, uh, you've been here since 1920, what was it? 1926. Me personally, I've been here since 1926. <laughs> no, my family's been here since 1926. My granddad um, came as a tenant. Um, there's two small holdings together. He came as a tenant to pet sentiment um, af after the First World War, and then they, he bought it with his two sons in the 1950s. And then when my mum and dad got married, they bought High Reesley, which is where we are now, where we milk the cows. Um, and uh, unfortunately, both the brothers have, have passed away, but... Um, my brother and me carried on milking, and then Carl started making the cheese. Pex Tenement is an interesting name. What's the history behind that? Well, on and, on and off, it's been called that since the 1600s when it was built, but it has, they have changed the names um, a little bit. Um, this Hyreesley used to be Eastwood Hall, and then they built Eastwood Hall. Um, so they, they do change, but we believe that it means um, the Pex means pigs and the tenement means a tenement as in a lot of people live there. All oh, right, okay. Uh, yeah, there was it 1901, there were ten families lived, lived in the uh, tenement. I don't know where they put them all. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can just hear three small calves. How old are they, these calves I can just see in front of me? Um, they are um, between a week and two weeks old. Right, okay. Babies. So how, ma how many cows... Do you have on the farm? Um, we've 60 that milk. Um, obviously not all at the same time. Some of them are waiting to give birth. Yeah. Um, and we've got the, all the followers, probably about 30 um, young, young ones coming up. And what breed of cows are they? They are MRI, which is Merserine Issel, which is a Dutch breed. And it's named from where the three rivers meet. That, they come from there. And they are... Um, Strangely, they're really good on the hillsides, even though they come from a flat country, and the milk is very good for cheese making. Which, when we started having them, when we got our first bull, we didn't know that. We just wanted something that was different um, and sturdier. You, you're what's known as an organic farm, so can you explain to our listeners what that means? <laughs> Farming wise, uh, everything's done, it's traditionally done without any chemicals. Uh, uh, any additives uh, farming-wise, you don't put anything on the fields? We, d we don't use fertiliser. We're allowed to use um, certain things. You have the soils tested, and because um, 
our soil's quite acidic. Um, we're allowed to use things like lime if, if it's needed to bring the pH balance right. Um, we can use seaweed, but we use mainly manure from the cows. It's, it's a, a, a rotating, um, self-contained ideal. And it's, what, it's how farming always used to be before all these extra things came in. Um, we are also PWAB, which is we produce milk without antibiotics. So our cows are not, well, when you say not allowed to have antibiotics, obviously if they're ill, they would do, but they would have to come out of the milking herd if, if that was the case. They would have to stay in rear calves or something if they've had any antibiotics at all. Um, because of the way that the, the world is going with antibiotic usage, um, in that it's, if it's used too widely, it no longer works. And uh, cheese-wise, we've got to, we're organic certified with organic farmers and growers uh, as, as the farm is. Uh, but we've got a producer's license, so we've got to prove that ev absolutely everything that goes into that cheese is, is organic. From uh, the milk is 99% of it. We get certain bacteria and cultures from France, they're all certified organic. And things like the water, we have to have the water tested to prove that there's no, uh, no chemicals that could, could get into the, into the cheese from there. So it's quite a process as a producer doing organic products. And we have an inspection once a year to go through all this. It takes a, it takes a full day to get through it. I mean, you're quite a small farm. Presumably that presents particular challenges, particularly today with all the regulations and bureaucracy. Yes, the, it, it is quite challenging. And as you say, it, there's not economies of scale, of scale. Well, there are, there are economies of scale for the big farmers. Everything that we do... They have to do as well, but obviously they're only they can have four or five farms, and they'll only have to do it once. And uh, you know, it, it, it is quite a, there is quite a burden of, of, of uh, paperwork and mm. and uh, regulations and things. Um, my brother's always trying to say, you know, it should be different for smaller farms, just like it should be different for smaller shops or whatever. But everybody needs the same, all the same certification needs. Yeah. Have things changed since the UK left the European Union? What we call Brexit? Uh, on the cheese, there's been no difference at all, really. Um, because we get the milk from the farm and we sell the cheese within a 30-mile radius of, uh, of the farm. So um, we, don't, we don't export or um, we don't particularly import anything to make the cheese. We get, the cultures come from France, but the, the supply of those has not changed at all since, since Brexit. So nothing really changed. The farm's slightly different uh, with the OMSCO, the milk cooperative. Uh, so OMSCO is the cooperative that you yeah. sell it's all the, the milk Yeah, chip. the organic yes. Uh, yes. milk suppliers. And they were, they were sending milk to, to organic milk to France, and, well, and other continental countries, and I believe there was quite a difficulty with that at first. But all those things, I think, have been overridden by COVID. And then the, this, the thing in, in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine is the thing that is going to make the most difference, I think. Because hi, <laughs> so much, um, so much of the, of, uh, well, not just animal feed, but person feed comes from the Ukraine and from Russia. And I think that's going to affect everything much, much more. It's, it's going to be much seri more serious, I think. We're living in difficult times. Yeah, very, very the difficult. pandemic. Uh, as a cheese producer, uh, within within a few days of it starting, the, the orders 
uh, went completely berserk. The, the online shop with people buying locally and things because they were all stuck indoors. Uh, we just we just spent day after day supplying cheese to uh, direct to people's houses, and the uh, the wholesalers, this our wholesalers supply organic shops, and those type of things. And the demand from them uh, increased dramatically during the during the pandemic. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of your cheese? Well, before we started this conversation, you took me into the cheese-making area and you showed me this wonderful exercise book that yeah. you have with the recipe. <laughs> we found the uh, uh, inner drawer with all the old things that are stored on a farm because nothing ever leaves a farm. We've got the exercise books written out by uh, Sandra's great-aunt, uh, what was she called? Annie. Annie. Uh, Sandra's great-aunt, Annie, who... Uh, wrote everything down and there's a recipe for, uh, for for cheese which was it was written out as a recipe for french cheese but they never used a french uh, white mold so the cheese that they made was was similar to lancashire cheshire type cheeses wensleydale those type of things and they used to make those on the farm in the 1920s it all died out in the 1940s so i think that is interesting because you know i see your products like brie in my local shops and mm something that I would connect with France. So I yeah. was really interested to hear your explanation that there was a tradition here that perhaps yeah. was long forgotten. I don't know where they got the, uh, the French recipe from, but they, they did and they wrote it out in the 1920s. And that's basically what we make now. But with a few little tweaks on it, we actually get the, the mould from, from France and we make the, the white mould of cheeses. I think all over the world, though, farmers started making cheese. They started developing just to to preserve the milk for a little bit longer and I think things grew in different places without people knowing um, what other people were doing. It's like um, you've got feta, haven't you? In, and and uh, we make a product called um, uh, Pexo Blanco which is based on a South American recipe of Quezo Blanco which is similar to Halume, which is similar to Panilla mm -hmm. yeah. and all these places that would be making this this product to preserve the milk, not knowing that the other side of the world we're also making this product, which is a really interesting yeah, the, example for for our audience, which is you know people who've come to the UK from all over the world and often listening to these podcasts yes, around the world. Yeah. So. yeah, the reason we make this this thing called Queso Blanco, which is a South American version of uh, Alumia Panilla, is because to make it organic, you need to put an acid in it to, to solidify the milk. And it's much easier to get organic white wine vinegar, which is what they use in South America, than to get organic lemon juice, which is what they use in India to make uh, paneer. So we, we chose to make this South American version simply because it's easy to get the organic products. Uh, and that's entirely why we did that. Uh, uh, so where do you sell your cheese? You've mentioned online and local shops. Yeah, we have, a, we have a, an online shop, so that sells directly to public. The most, most of the cheese goes to, we've got two wholesalers. One's called Organic North, uh, based in Manchester, that supply all organic shops uh, and restaurants throughout the UK. Uh, and the other one is called Wellex. Uh, they supply restaurants. So we, the main two cheeses that we make, the brie and the blue cheese, uh, we sell the, the, the vast majority go to those two wholesalers. And then it gets distributed then throughout the UK. And we do lots of... Uh, we're not doing we're not doing as many as we did, but we do markets and food festivals and things. So and, and we supply local local shops. Yeah, lots, lots of local we, shops. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully, uh, Tottenham and Hebden Bridge and 
it's everywhere in those shops. Yeah, hopefully soon, you know, we will all be able to go to local markets and food <laughs> festivals. And... Yeah, they pick it up a little bit. But uh, before the pandemic of things, we sold the vast majority that we sold was actually at food festivals direct to the public. Then it all switched around during the pandemic. The, the uh, wholesalers started selling a lot more. So how many people do you employ here? Uh, on the farm. Um, on the farm, there's my brother and I, we've had an apprentice who's just finished, so he's doing a little bit, carrying on doing a little bit for us. Um, we've got a work experience girl who's at university, who you might have seen today in passing. She's, when she's home, she, she works for us. Other than that, that's it. And on the um, cheese is just me and the part-time assistant, and Sandra does part-time on the cheese as well. So basically being two part-timers on the cheese. Yeah. So typically, how many cheeses a week or a month do you well, we, we, produce? We make cheese six times a month. Uh, we do 400 litres. And I think over the year, we, we make between 2,000 and 3,000 kilos, which is very, very small for, for, for a cheesemaker. Uh, we, we could scale it up a little bit, but uh, everything's just set for that, that type of volume. Yeah, but you have such a loyal following locally. I think yeah. it's really delighted local people that there is a yeah. cheese that comes from these hills. There's still quite a few people that don't know about us. Well, though, hopefully. That live, yeah, that live locally. Yeah, trying, yeah, every time we do something locally, somebody will say, oh, is this made in Tomadon? Yeah. <laughs> Just because our audience are not English-speaking as a first language, your accents, would you say you were typical of Lancashire accents? Or? Um... Well, here, from here accents. I was, I was yeah. born here. Which is this interesting because it's a border. <laughs> yes. We're very close to Yorkshire. We're, well, we are in Yorkshire. Yes. Are we technically yes. in Yorkshire here? Yeah. But within a mile or so, two miles into Lancashire? Yeah, and the accents are very different everywhere, yeah. aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think my accent changes a little bit with the people that I, I'm, I'm with when, before I came back to the farm working. Um, I used to work for what was then the Halifax Building Society and I worked with a lot of people who were from Rochdale and my accent changed very, very much then because I was with them all the time. Yeah. It's interesting how we adapt to the people yeah. yes. we're with, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, we've basically got this uh, unique accent in Tomlin and uh, there's nothing like it, is there? Well, it's an amalgamation, I think, of all the people. Of all, that have, all around us. All the people that have come to us from all also different places. Yeah. I mean, Hebden Bridge particularly has got a a lot of people who originated from the south of England because of the um, there were incentives to get people to come to Hebden Bridge because Hebden Bridge was a dying dying town at one time. So in the 70s, a lot of people came from many areas of the country and abroad. <laughs> <laughs> so no, this is great. It's been such an interesting story. I mean, I've been aware of you but didn't know all the sort of real detail, particularly the French. Yeah. <laughs> heritage behind the cheese and the history of it really appreciate your spending time or a busy start to your day milking time <laughs> happening around us and yeah carl a, about to start cheese making i think are you uh, well we've got a wholesaler coming to pick some orders up so i've got to get all the order ready right. this morning well that's great thank you so much thank you thank you